Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Close Readings podcast. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I am very excited um, to welcome you to the first proper episode of the podcast. Uh, my guest today is Brian Glavy. And uh, when I first thought of this podcast, Brian was one of the first people I thought of having onto it. And I hope the reasons for um, why that might be will emerge and, and seem obvious to people who are listening. Um, part of the reason uh, I, has to do with uh, the argument that Brian makes in an article that he's written uh, about the poem that we'll be talking about today, uh, which is Frank O'Hara's um, great poem, Having a Coke With You. Um, for people who want to um, look at the poem as we talk about it, uh, there is a link um, provided to you in the episode notes with whatever podcast app you're using, um, or if you have um, subscribed to the newsletter that I've started to go along with the podcast, you should be able to find a link to the poem there. Um, and of course, you can just Google it, having a Coke with you. Um, you'll You'll find the poem quite easily, and you might want to be glancing at it as we talk. Um, but let me say a word about Brian uh, before we get started. Uh, Brian Glavies, uh, an associate professor of English at the University of South Carolina. He's the author of The Wallflower Avant-Garde, which came out from Oxford University Press in 2016. And he's currently at work on a book uh, about the poetics of oversharing, uh, which is a a delicious and fantastic topic. And I'm happy to say I've gotten to read little bits of that book as Brian's been working on them and um, the world needs to get ready for this brilliance. Um, Brian's articles have appeared in such journals as PMLA, New Literary History, Criticism, American Literature, Modernism, Modernity. And um, I'm not going to do anything um, here, be, you know, in, in the sort of standard academic model of a lengthy introduction. But I, I, one thing I do just want to say before we get going about Brian's work that I so admire is, is that he, you get the sense if you read something he's written, or if you get to, um, the chance to hear him talk about poetry, that he puts two things together that I find um, like a very difficult needle to thread that on the one hand, Brian is quite happy to talk about and evince his own kinds of enthusiastic attachments to poems and poetry. Um, and on the other hand, you, um, you never get the sense that you're drifting too far from the terrain of critique and of um, clear and rigorous thinking. Um, those aren't always two things that go together. Um, it's a way, and this is Brian's joke, in his article, not mine. It's a way of having your Coke and drinking it too. I think that maybe is modeled for us by the poem that we're going to talk about today. Um, but it's just something I really admire in Brian's work. And, and so I'm especially happy to have him as our um, guest on the podcast today. Brian Glavy, welcome. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And I, I didn't realize that I would be the first. So um, uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, it's quite an honor. And um, your description of threading that needle really means a lot to me because that really is um, the ambition that I bring to the work, which is to both, um, or is just to the the conviction, which I think is part of what this poem is about, that um, rigorous critique and intense attachments are not, in fact, 
um, uh, in competition with one another. And a lot of the um, sort of theoretical discourse in the humanities in recent years has often imagined that those two um, impulses were ir- irreconcilable in a way. And I think uh, poems like O'Hara's show that that's not the case. And that's really been kind of my guiding light. Oh, well, um, it, it's, um, it's, it's something that does clearly emerge from the, um, the writing you've done about the poem and about other poems too. So, um, I'm glad, I'm glad to have hit that note, um, well in your mind. Um, and maybe the first thing we should do is to listen to the poem read aloud. And, um, this is a fortunate case. It won't always be the case moving forward on this podcast where we'll be talking about poems from centuries ago in some cases where such things as recordings don't exist. But in, but in this case, um, we do have a recording and it's a sort of, um, uh, I don't know, as poetry goes, a kind of viral recording in a way of um, the poet himself, Frank O'Hara, um, reading the poem aloud. Um, I'll, I'll also put a link to this in the show notes and so people can um, not only listen to O'Hara's voice if they're curious, but can see the, um, his image as well. The, the clip is up on YouTube um, and is available in other places. And uh, Brian and I were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, neither of us is um, entirely clear on all the details here, um, so our bad. But um, but th- but the recording that you're going to hear um, comes from shortly before O'Hara's untimely um, death uh, by accident, and um, and and is part of a television series on poetry that appeared in. Um, in the late sixties, I guess. Um, so, um, without further ado, let's listen to Frank O'Hara reading today's poem for us. The poem's called having a Coke with you. It's even more fun than going to St. Sebastian, Irun, Ondai, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach on the Travesera de Gracia in Barcelona. Partly because in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier St. Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you. Partly because of your love for yogurt. Partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches. Partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people in statuary. It is hard to believe when I'm with you that there can be anything as still, as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary when right in front of it, in the warm New York four o'clock light. We are drifting back and forth between each other like a tree breathing through its spectacles. And the portrait show seems to have no faces in it at all, just paint. You suddenly wonder why in the world anyone ever did them. I look at you, and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world except possibly for the Polish rider occasionally. And anyway, it's in the Frick, which thank heavens you haven't gone to yet so we can go together the first time. And the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism, just as at home I never think of the nude descending a staircase or at a rehearsal a single drawing of Leonardo or Michelangelo that used to wow me. And what good does all the research of the Impressionists do them when they never got the right person to stand near the tree when the sun sank? Or for that matter, Marino Marini, when he didn't pick the rider as carefully as the horse. It seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. Brian, I, I, I just love that recording. 
And I'd be very curious to know, um, just to invite you to to say a word or two about what you think about when you listen to O'Hara read the poem. Um, is what are you noticing in his voice or in his way of reading, um, um, or even given the fact that you've seen the the um, visuals as well um, about the the visual impression he gives when reading the poem. Yeah, as you said, we're so fortunate to have this um, to have this recording, uh, and uh, I show it to my students quite frequently. And I think they're often uh, taken with it for lots of different reasons. This is something I literally had never noticed before just now, but I think only listening to the audio and not seeing the visuals, I don't think I'd ever heard the um, the car horns uh, that you can hear in the background, which is such a I don't know moving. Um, a little detail uh, that sort of connects this um, reading to a specific moment in time and and to New York City and to all the things that O'Hara is um, uh, beloved for for celebrating. But you can sort of see on the one hand the the casualness of his reading in a way. Uh, He's not declaiming this poem. Uh, He's not really performing it exactly uh, I sort of was thinking about talking about this poem and imagining how I would read it. And it's sort of a struggle because I feel like I'm tempted to perform it a little bit more um, dramatically than, than he actually does uh, in, uh, in this particular reading, which is, an interesting, um, which is an interesting thing, right? It's a poem that's so much about enthusiasm. Uh, and it's not that it's an unenthusiastic reading, but it's not... Um, uh, it's sort of not a, a poem uh, that is uh, as jazzed up as he reads it, uh, uh, as you might anticipate that it would be. Uh, and I think that that's sort of an interesting thing, both about this poem and about O'Hara's persona. And it speaks to, I mean, not to get into the um, mm. uh, philosophical quandaries of the poem. Let's but get this into is a poem that, <laughs> Yeah. So it's a poem that is, um, uh, that really raises a lot of questions. I mean, not to explode your podcast, but I was sort of just thinking about the idea of close reading. And one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this particular text is that it really highlights a lot of problems about what we do when we close read a poem and about what kinds of scrutiny are sort of necessary in order to um, understand a poem or appreciate a poem or um, or, or critique it or, or what have you. And what's remarkable about this poem uh, is that it's a love poem. And as a love poem, it's directed to a very specific person that, um, you know, lived and breathed and um, uh, is no longer with us and is, uh, you know, in a really real way, the you of this person. It was a young um, dancer named Vincent Warren who O'Hara had met the previous year uh, and fallen deeply in love with. And as a love poem, it's um, it's a certain kind of linguistic act, uh, but it's also a text that's written for a, an audience. And trying to figure out how we relate to this poem uh, that is, um, you know, that is on the one hand directed to someone other than us, but also is clearly directed to us as well. Um, is one of the just, uh, you know, the the sort of theoretical questions that this poem 
forces you to uh, to consider. So just to go back to the reading, right? I, my, my sense is um, uh, that he's not reading this poem in the way that he would if he were speaking directly to Vincent Warren. He's reading this poem as if it were a text, as if it were a poem that he had written, uh, uh, that he's reading with other poems that he had written. And I think that's just really interesting uh, that yeah. this is, you know, um, a, a text that exists in different registers for different people. Yeah, um, well, I I have so many thoughts, but um, you know, one of them is that I I notice on listening to the recording this time that he, you know, the way he, so this is one of those kinds of poems whose title is its first line, right? Um, but he's um, uh, sort of funny about how he frames it. He says, "Well, this is a poem called Having a Coke with You," and then starts reading as um, uh, which. Uh, seems not i agree with you like the way he would present the poem to its primary recipient it seems instead like he's sharing a poem with us um, and is sort of foregrounding that fact about it but i'm curious about something you said a moment ago brian because i'm not sure that i quite get it yet which is i i think i heard you connect um something to do with the flatness or um a word that you use or a phrase that you use a couple of times in your article about this poem, um, which by the way, that should also, there, there will be a link to that too in the, in the show notes. Um, and, and the article, um, appeared in PMLA and is called having a Coke with you is even more fun than ideology critique. Um, the a phrase you use a couple of times, there's something low key, about the poem and perhaps about the performance, but I thought I heard you um, sort of linking that aspect of its tone or of the tone of the performance of the poem to um, this idea that um, sort of is a resisting close reading or that isn't um, is in some kind of tension with the practice of close reading. And I wonder was I hearing you right? And if so, could you say more about that? Like, what do those two things have to do with each other? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. I would say I actually don't think that the poem resists close reading, um, but I do think it foregrounds the, 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 the problem of close reading. I mean, so in my uh, article and in the book that I'm writing, I'm interested in relatability as an aesthetic category. And, um, this is a poem that I uh, describe as relatable in several different senses. The first way is it's relatable, and this is the way my students respond to it. And it's also the reason that I love this poem so much. It's relatable in the colloquial sense that, um, you know, it's a poem that's very easy to sort of get on an emotional level. It's talking about, um, I think, a kind of excitement and a, infatuation a feeling that um, many, many people are able to identify with, uh, and that's part of why it's had this viral success. Um, but it's also a poem that's relatable in this older sense, which really means relatable as something that you are able to relate, or maybe um, to use a, a word that you um, brought up, to, to, to be able to share it. And I think it's a poem that's asking a fundamental question about um, uh, about poetry, about art, which is just how much of our experience are we able to share with other people? And I think it's a poem that's worried about that. Um, uh, and I think just sort of in general, that there's a great deal of 
poetry, especially lyric poetry, that is sort of obsessed with that question. But finally, it's relatable in the sense that um, it's a, about the way, not just that we might relate to a text, but the way that the text might relate to us, or the way that a work of art might relate to our lives or to other works of art. Um, and in general, I also think that poetry like this is a poem like this is like a machine for generating relationships um, or for sort of connecting things. And it's, I think that kind of complicated relationality, that's one of the things that makes, I don't mean this in an ontological sense and I'm not dogmatic about it, but I, but I do think it's part of what's um, sort of special about literature or maybe special about the way we pay attention to literature. So the difference between, um, you know, reading something as a love letter and reading it as a love poem uh, is a difference in how we think about the relationship between that text and the rest of the world or, or life or, or our lives. And so when we think of it as a love poem and not just as a, a personal love letter that was for one person, the, the question is, or, or the issue is that like everything about how that poem relates to anything else is sort of up for grabs. You know, so uh, it's it's like an open question how much um, the poem really is dependent upon that occasion in which it was written and which it was originally um, read and distributed, et cetera. And that holds not just for, um, you know, not just for the fact that it was written for a specific person and there were specific thing details in this poem that ostensibly would mean something to Vincent Warren in a way that they don't mean to us. But it also... Um, uh, it also resonates on a level that's a little bit maybe one step removed from that, which is that this is also a poem that's filled with lots of cultural references that are specific in some sense to O'Hara's life and his own kind of milieu. He worked at the Museum of Modern Art. This poem is really directly tied to the work that he was doing um, when he wrote it. Uh, and these are things that you could go look up. And the question, I think, is, do you have to look them up? Right. So does this poem like do you need to know who Marino Marini is in order to really have understood this poem? And I could absolutely see a case that would say, yes, absolutely. You need to like really um, uh, do your homework and try to reconstruct these references in order to really get to really understand the meaning of this work. But on the other hand, I think that there's a compelling case that says that, in fact, that's not necessary. And so it's worthwhile to close read this poem in that sense and to pay very close attention to what the details of this poem are doing. Um, but it's not self-evident that that's the only way to, um, to relate to the poem or the best way to relate to it. And I think O'Hara is really, um, uh, like, I think he's really interested in that. And so much of his poetry is about kind of playing with this relationship between a specific occasion in which a poem is initially um, written for a particular person, you know, included in a letter to a particular person uh, up against this other context where he's also imagining it as a poem. And so the fact that he does pause that way after he um, says, well, this is a poem called Having a Coke With You before running into the poem, like that's clearly the title of the poem. It's not just that this is like, it's the first line and he's just sort of um, hit the ground running. Uh, you know, he wrote many, many poems that he just titled poem, and there's nothing that says a poem needs to have a title. So this is like not just a, um, you know, an expression of love. It is a work of art, I think, in his mind. 
Uh, and as such, like we have to ask all these questions about how the details work together, how it fits into his life, and then ultimately how it fits into our lives. But, and presumably, though, it seems important um, to your sense of, of, of the dynamic that you just described um, that it... <laughs> that it is also a love letter or, or rather that it, that it does also have an, a, a, a you who's being addressed in the first sense so that it's not, it, the poem would be different in other words, or it would be, we would be missing something about it if we treated it as though it were uh, a dramatic monologue or something, um, a poem invented, uh, a, a kind of speaker inventing a situation in which he's addressing some beloved and um, the kind of familiar, um, way we're um, somehow sometimes taught to read poems um, in that sense that 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 in other words our the, the 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 claims the poem makes on us or the um the way it relates to us as you put it has something to do with that other thing that it's doing which is talking to vincent uh, right the 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 um first intended recipient of the poem. Um, and, I, and I was struck, um, or I've always been struck in looking at the clip um, of, of O'Hara reading this poem too, mm-hmm. how he looks up into the camera at the very end of it um, as he reads the lines, it seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. And as he says that, he sort of looks square into the camera, it seems, um, and one feels addressed, you know, by O'Hara in that moment as the sort of primary addressee in that moment. Um, so yeah, do go, you feel like on. the, do you feel like the you in that final, um, in that final line is the same as the you in the title? I mean, I, I could imagine one way of, of, uh, understanding what happens in this poem would be sort of for the transformation of the you from Vincent Warren to Vincent Warren and others looking on or Vincent Warren and um, readers of this poem hundreds of years into the future um, that sort of it could be, be a, you know, beginning in a really specific way and then getting sort of, you know, Whitman-esque at the end. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. At least um, in, uh, I tend to feel, I, I tend to feel that the you at the end of the poem is me. Um and um and 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 maybe not when maybe not all of us <laughs> which is you know p- plainly ridiculous um but but the but the the excitement the poem makes me feel is the excitement of being addressed directly at its end um no i don't quite at its beginning um i want to um well shift gears slightly but I, it's a related question just that in your article on this poem brian you talk about uh your classroom experience um teaching o'hara where you had sort of one kind of um ambition pedagogically in the classroom and that you found that your students were more interested in something else and um i wonder if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners something about what teaching O'Hara um, has been like for you and what surprises there have been for you in, um, in that experience, which I'm sure you've done many times. Yeah. The experience I describe uh, in that article was an experience teaching a class um, that was called the, uh, the poetics of oversharing uh, a number of years ago at a moment when I hadn't really figured out what I meant by that phrase 
Um, and what I was really interested in in that class at that point was um, sort of thinking about whether confession was still the right way to think about the way that people talk about their experience um, and certainly the way that they write poems uh, about it. it. It felt for a long time like um, like even when poetry wasn't explicitly confessional poetry, the, the kind of conceptual model for just understanding what it meant to share aspects of your um, personal life in a public way uh, was modeled on this idea of confession. And my intuition was that um, that just in general, confession doesn't resonate the way that it used to for um, for my students, say, in part because of things like social media, which are predicated on the sort of constant um, uh, sharing of private um, aspects of your life in a model that I don't think is well described by the kind of ethical or juridical or um, sort of religious uh, discourse of confession. But but still, for the most part, I, I was interested in confession and in confessional poetry and sort of thinking about O'Hara um, in relationship to confession. Um, and so I had picked out these poems that I wanted to talk about that really were linked to those kinds of issues. And um, on one day, uh, a student sort of um, staged a mini coup. And instead of writing response papers on the poem I had assigned, um, so everyone in my class uh, wrote a response uh, on this poem, which I had not assigned and um, which I had sort of no plans of talking about, despite the fact that I um, that I that I loved it dearly. Mm. Um, and I learned a lot of things from that um, shift. Uh, but one of the things I realized was that the Frank O'Hara that I had kind of, you know, um, grown up studying uh, was not the same O'Hara that my students were encountering. Um, the O'Hara that I had kind of uh, learned to to read and think about was a poet who, um, you know, was a, a charming but also difficult experimental poet, uh, you know, surrounded by mm. other charming but difficult experimental poets. Uh, and the version that my students really responded to was in some ways a much more straightforward uh, like love poet, a, a poet who wrote really gorgeous um, uh, expressions of love and desire and happiness and, and heartbreak. Uh, and um, this had sort of, this shift had happened and I hadn't really noticed and I was sort of embarrassed to, um, uh, to, to, to realize uh, that this was the case. And I think there were lots of reasons why that shift um, had happened. Uh, but one of the things that it signaled was that that version of O'Hara would have been unthinkable, I don't know, maybe just 20 years ago because of O'Hara's queerness. Uh, and again, for lots of complicated reasons, uh, his homosexuality wasn't a bar to his being um, kind of taken up as a, you know, um, uh, universal uh, kind of um, figure. Uh, and so I was just really interested in that transformation in which a certain sensibility, which had at one point been marked as being um, specifically the kind of property of a specific gay male subculture in you know, mid 20th century uh, becomes appropriable in this way. And sort of the what happens when that transformation occurs, um, what's what's lost, uh, what's uh, you know, what's gained, et cetera.
Right. I know you had the question um, as your students sort of testified to finding the poem so relatable. Um, you had a kind of question about, well, what is it exactly that they're relating to? Um, given, and, and I want to talk um, um, more specifically about moments in the poem and sort of lines in the poem um, in, in um, this next part of our conversation. You know, the poem begins with a kind of rapid list of um, place names um, and then um, and then in by its third line we begin this sort of anaphoric section where we get a number of lines that begin with the word partly um, and um, one gets the sense in reading the poem or in hearing O'Hara read the poem that at its beginning in particular it's just sort of chock full of specific things that presumably are not places that most readers have been to or even know about or could identify on a map um, that um, the, the the stuff in all the partly lines um, just as likely don't apply or aren't sort of furnishing my room or environment as 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 not so um, uh, apart from your students own experience of all of that I mean I'm, I'm just curious, to hear you, Brian, talk about um, what all of that specificity and the sort of way that it's rendered in the poem is doing in the opening lines of what I think you and I both agree is like a really hot love poem, right? Why, you know, why all these places and names and why all this, um, um, uh, why, you know, what do you make of that sort of partly, partly, partly rhythm at the, at the beginning? Could you say something about those things? Well, again, the, the details, um, are tied in a very direct way to, um, the situation in which he is writing the poem and, um, uh, tied very directly to his relationship with Warren. So just to sort of take us maybe a brief detour through biography, um, O'Hara met uh, Warren in, I think, August of 1959 and um, sort of uh, immediately just fell rapturously in love with him. They had, I think, encountered one another um, a few times uh, in the months running up to that. But this particular um, kind of intersection of their lives was one of those events that really just um, sort of changed everything for uh, for O'Hara. It was a relationship that really, um, I think, um, it certainly changed the kinds of poems that he wrote and sort of surprised him mm. um, uh, in that regard. Uh, but over the next two years or so after that moment when they met, uh, O'Hara wrote probably 50 um, just, you know, phenomenal poems, many of them very directly love poems for uh, for Warren. And the occasion for this poem, uh, as I said, O'Hara worked for the International Program for the Museum of Modern Art. And the um, itinerary, those specific details in the first um, two lines are connected to a, a work trip that he had just come back for. He wrote this poem on April 21st, 1960, uh, and uh, had just returned to New York from a tour of Spain, where he was working on a, um, a show of Spanish painting and sculpture for, uh, for MoMA. And during that trip, he met up with his uh, good friend, the poet John Ashbery, and um, they followed exactly the, um, the itinerary that the poem lists in that, uh, in that, first, uh, in that first line. 
and it was a, a kind of in terms of their relationship, I think the trip was a big deal because um, Warren was a dancer and he he traveled uh, a lot. But this was, I think, the first time that O'Hara um, sort of left. Uh, and he was, I think, anxious about being away for an extended uh, period. Uh, he also, during that trip, and, and Warren knew this, was um, planning to meet with a, an old lover. And so there was, you know, there's lots of complicated dynamics here. Um, and so he returns and he writes this poem sort of immediately after getting back, I think, as a way of expressing to Warren uh, just how much he had missed him. Uh, and um, uh, and again, the sort of details, there's nothing um, sort of overly contrived uh, about this. Even the artists later in the poem are artists that he was working on at that moment um, related to the work that he was doing, the curatorial work that he was doing. So it all really is rooted in a specific way to his life and to his relationship with um, with Vincent. Um, and uh, as you say, I think part of what's interesting about the poem is the way it sort of begins with this sort of hyper specificity, which if it continued in that register for a little bit longer would quickly become, um, I think, alienating. But because of the way it sort of switches gears, uh, even those those details, rather than being bars to identification, I think um, uh, somehow, I don't know, I think part of what the magic that this poem does is it sort of recalibrates your relationship to the specificity so that you don't see the specificity as something that um, keeps you out, but that invites you in, not because you attach to those particulars, but because you're able to see those particulars as being examples right. related to the fact that you have your own particularity that you might be able to sort of um, catalog right. uh, uh, in relationship to um, you know, uh, someone that you might have, be in love with. And those partlies are important there because, I mean, there's just something like brilliant about thinking about, uh, you know, I think this is a, a kind of example of the blazon or the, you know, the, right. um, that like love poem tradition of how do I love it? Let me down. count the ways. Yeah. Uh, and so in, in that ways, it's a very traditional gesture, but the, the kind of idea that the way that you would explain your enthusiasm about someone would be through this enumeration of details that in and of themselves don't necessarily signify that much, but when they're taken together, um, is just, I think, a, a brilliant insight about like what it feels like to be in love with someone, or maybe what it feels like to have a crush on someone, where there are all of these things that suddenly um, might be totally mundane in other contexts, but suddenly they seem imbued with a kind of um, like erratic magnificence because they remind you of this person or of time that you spent with that person. I, I think the line, partly because of my love for you, partly because of your love for yogurt, is just such a brilliant, um, like you could imagine sort of reading it out of context as indicating a, you know, like there's something amiss with this relationship. <laughs> like, like I love you. Like if you say I love you to someone <laughs> and their response is I love yogurt, um, like right. that's a red flag probably. Or if you were to um, say to somebody, what do you love about me? And, and they said to you, I love you for your love of yogurt. Maybe you'd feel funny about it, but I know what you mean. And I'm, that's my, maybe my favorite line in the poem too, but I'm not sure why. Tell me why, Brian. <laughs> 
Why is that my favorite line? Well, I think that uh, I think the cultural history of yogurt remains to be um, uh, like I was sort of wondering like like who really eats yogurt um, in New York City at this particular moment? Yeah, like, know. is him being a dancer um, like part of um, uh, part of his love for yogurt? But but I think it you know on a like on a basic level, it just feels right to me. It just feels true that that what it is that you love about someone is um, you know uh, often these insignificant details that when you feel that way about them feel so endearing um uh, uh and you know just make you happy uh and you know at a different moment in your relationship that you might have a completely different relationship to right. uh, you know that uh you know attachment to yogurt yeah, yeah. but but it's the you know i don't know i think there's this walter benjamin quote about sort of when you when you fall in love with a, a face, it's the kind of um, it's like the awkward imperfection on the face. That's uh, the sort of site where your love attaches. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like there's something uh, there's just something uh, about that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, this is just O'Hara kind of geeking out in a way. Yeah. Um, uh, about this person that he is just so uh, enamored with and like every little detail about them just seems um, just seems fun and great. Right. I mean, but also there's like, yeah, go ahead. But, and also I just think that there's like the poem is so intent on deflating the kind of seriousness of, um, uh, of, of poetry in general, of kind of culture in general, but, but specifically of love poetry, I think that, um, uh, you know, it's not really saying that there's a metaphysical, um, kind of truth to be ascertained from this feeling he has. Uh, instead, it's fun. And um, you can sort of uh, lay out partly reasons that explain that fun. And part of the power of the poem, I think, is the sense that you could imagine he could just go on and on and on, right? That's part of the way that the, the anaphoric partly structure works is that it's not that this is the complete recipe for, um, you know, for explaining this love. Uh, these are just examples and he could keep going on and on and on listing other ones, right, which is again, right. part of why it ends up being relatable because other people like, Oh yeah, like I could, you know, I could generate a catalog. Um, right. Like yeah. I, it, I mean, it, it, it occurs to me that, you know, you have these, um, the series of lines, what is it? One, two, three, four of them that all begin with the word partly, but th that one line is the one time, isn't it? That, that, that there is a kind of second partly within the line. Right. So, um, it's somehow like the um, this um, catalog of um, attributes that the um, beloved has um, suddenly um, reflect back onto the speaker in in some in some way, um, or there's a kind of um, uh, there's a kind of accretive glow that's created in that moment. Um, clearly something different. I mean, there's other kinds of stuff in the poem too. And I want to bend around to a consideration of the second half of the poem briefly before we run out of time here. Um, and it seems to me, but I wonder what your impression is that if there's a kind of turn in the poem, it comes somewhere around the line. You suddenly wonder why anyone in, um, in the world. So, sorry, let me get it. Let me get it right. You suddenly wonder why in the world anyone ever did them. I look at you and I would rather look at you in that moment where now the 
second half of the poem is filled not with things like fluorescent orange tulips and yogurt and so on, but um, great works of art. And so, um, um, what do the like? How do you see the relationship between the first half of the poem and the, and if you agree with my division of it into halves in the, in the first place, um, and the second half of the poem that has these other kinds of objects in it and and a new kind of attitude or relation towards those objects, maybe. Yeah, that's a. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, the other uh, like I want to talk about the the tree breathing through its oh, spectacles right. line yeah, yeah. too, which Say is maybe another that. kind of. Uh, well, let, let let me do the um the 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 hinge that you're talking about first because it it just I hadn't really noticed this before, but I feel like there's a way in which the logic of that second half is replicating the logic of the yogurt line too, where I think one way of reading that the fact that there are two partlies in that one line, um, uh, talking about love and yogurt, um, is that there's this kind of I think vulnerability. And sort of actually just coming out and saying my love for you in this poem that otherwise is like clearly animated by love, but is um, sort of taking a kind of indirect uh, route to expressing it. And so I feel like there's a way in which you can imagine O'Hara writing this poem, just coming out and basically saying, I love you. Uh, and then in order to kind of, um, you know, keep the mood light and airy, like feeling a, the need to sort of insert a joke, which is still a, I think a true statement. So it's sort and, of deflationary. Yeah. There's this kind of logic of self-deprecation in a way that is, I think, important to, um, to O'Hara and his, and his peers. And, and you see that in, in that second moment too, because, you know, it, it, if the poem were to stop there, like that's a very earnest thing for him to say, I look at you and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world. Um, uh, and in fact, and to go back to the recording, I think it's interesting that he really pauses hard after I look uh, at you and I would rather look at you than all the yeah. portraits in the world. And, um, and that is a uh, line break. I mean, for people who aren't looking at the poem right now, right? So the I look is, is a sort of in gem that happens there and you hear it in, in O'Hara's um performance of the poem at that moment. Go on, Brian. Uh, but then the, immediately, except the Polish writer occasionally in any way, it's in the frick, which is, you know, um, uh, sort of backing away from this earnestness with a bit of kind of um, uh, cleverness. Uh, uh, and then the rest of that section is, uh, again, it's just, it, uh, it's doing this magical thing of both being um, uh, sort of ridiculously clever uh, in its sort of deflation of these works of art, and yet also being really earnest at the same time. Uh, and that's a kind of tonal um, accomplishment that I, that I think is uh, is is difficult is difficult to achieve. But but part of what's um, you know the part of what's significant about the fact that the details in this half are so um, uh, kind of weighted with gravitas and cultural authority is the fact that like part of what makes this poem so moving is that I truly believe you would be hard pressed to find anyone in the world uh, on April 21st, 1960, who cared more about, um, uh, you know, the new descending a staircase and Leonardo and Michelangelo, like O'Hara really had devoted his life to art and, you know, uh, to an extent that his poet friends were kind of um, uh, sort of bitter that so much of his energy went 
uh, in this direction. He's not really being flippant here. He's not mm. um, somebody who sort of uh, just doesn't really see the point in any of this stuff. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's more important to him than than nearly anything. Uh, and so the um, this sort of joking. Uh, way that he positions all of these things as being in some ways deficient because they um, lack the, um, you know, they, they lack the, the sort of beauty of, of this person that he's uh, in love with. Um, it's just a, I think a, an especially powerful thing that he's doing. Right. So, so do you, do you think, um, do you think that Warren um sort of picks up or accrues some of the loving attention that from O'Hara, that from O'Hara would would under ordinary circumstances be directed at the art you know is this a is this a sort of um a kind of a magician's trick in other words in which the the one thing is kind of palmed and replaced by the other so that there's this sort of way one looks at art and perhaps in particular the way one looks at art if one is O'Hara and by listing all of those um, works of art that and then and then dis, and, and and sort of doing so at least for the terms of the poem in a kind of dismissive or um, disenchanted way that there's a way in which Warren sort of picks up the enchantment that one has normally invested in the work of art, or is it a more subtle kind of um, psychological event going on at the end of the poem than that? Yeah, I wonder, Uh, I mean, my intuition is that, that really what this poem is about is O'Hara's refusal of the idea that works of art are enchanted in a way that's different than the way that yogurt is enchanted or that um, the person that you're, um, uh, you know, uh, in a relationship with might be enchanted that like fundamentally um, I I think um, enthusiasm is enthusiasm and attention is a, is attention. And the reason why, having the good fortune to be in love with someone is important to O'Hara is that that relationship makes you all the more attentive to all the things that you were already attentive to. So even though he's sort of poking fun at futurism and impressionism, I I think that his poetry and not just his poems about Warren, also his poems about friends and other lovers too, like what it proves is that, um, that are the love that we feel for other people or the kind of intense intimacy we have with friends, um, uh, it amplifies sort of everything else about our lives uh, in a way that is um, not like a, a that doesn't take away from aesthetic experience. Hmm. Uh, it, it actually sort of adds just more, more value. And that was an idea that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't unique, certainly, but it was at odds with the kind of dominant version right. of modernism that kind of held sway in his circles. And, you know, in, in I think which what the I, work of art would, would sort of um, 
you know, ex- sort of had value only on its own terms somehow, and 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 was um, existed in a in a realm that that couldn't that didn't have anything to do with the person looking, you know, at the at the Jackson Pollock painting or whatever it was. It was like the painting was its own world and was valuable insofar as it was its own world. Yeah, exactly. Um, when O'Hara left for this trip that is commemorated in the poem, right before he went, he and Warren um, had a goodbye kiss uh, behind a Alexander Calder um, uh, uh, panel. And in one of the letters that he wrote um, during that time, uh, O'Hara um, mentions this kiss and says about the work of art, well, that's what it needed, a little history. Um, and the idea is that you know, the experience of seeing the work of art and sharing it with someone else is not separate from the aesthetic experience in the way that you're describing, right? It's not about, Hmm. um, uh, it doesn't sort of detract from your seriousness if you are thinking about your boyfriend while you're looking at a painting. Uh, In fact, what makes aesthetic experience aesthetic experience for O'Hara, and I think there's actually like a long philosophical tradition of this, is the fact that aesthetic experience is shareable in its very nature. Uh, and that's something that he's really plugging into and um, exploring in a way that's both really fun, but also I think deeply philosophical in this uh, in this poem. Well, well, you write, Brian, towards the end of your um, brilliant article, you write these different forms of relatability all reflect a belief that we deepen our aesthetic experience when we talk about it. The key to not wasting a marvelous experience is to tell someone about it. The beautiful thing about paintings and statues, in other words, is the way they can be woven into social relationships. Um, and I just think that's that that's beautiful and and um, and and perfectly put. And to, I mean, to be perfectly honest, as part of the, my sort of motivation for starting this silly podcast um, in the first place. And so I think that might um, just about be a good place to end, but. But before we do end today, Brian, I wonder if for the benefit of our audience, having once heard O'Hara read the poem, we could end today by my asking you to read Having a Coke with You uh, for us in your own voice. Absolutely. Having a Coke with you is even more fun than going to San Sebastian, Irun, Undai, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach on the Travesera de Gracia in Barcelona. Partly because in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier Saint Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you. Partly because of your love for yogurt. Partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches. Partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people and statuary. It is hard to believe when I'm with you that there can be anything as still as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary. When right in front of it, in the warm New York four o'clock light, we are drifting back and forth between each other, like a tree breathing through its spectacles. And the portrait show seems to have no faces in it at all, just paint. You suddenly wonder why in the world anyone ever did them. I look at you, and I would rather look at you, than all the portraits in the world, except possibly for the Polish writer occasionally. And anyway, it's in the Frick, which thank heavens you haven't gone to yet, so we can go together for the first time. And the fact that you move so beautifully 
more or less takes care of futurism. Just as at home, I never think of the new descending a staircase, or at a rehearsal a single drawing of Leonardo or Michelangelo that used to wow me. And what good does all the research of the Impressionists do them when they never got the right person to stand near the tree when the sun sank? Or for that matter, Marino Marini, when he couldn't pick the rider as carefully as the horse. It seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. Brian Glavy, thank you very much for being the first guest on Close Readings. Um, I, um, I encourage people to subscribe to the podcast um, so that you get new episodes as they come. We've got some exciting ones um, lined up. Thank you, Brian.